has the president committed offenses and planned and directed and acquiesced in a, con in a course of conduct which the Constitution will not tolerate? That's the question. We know that. We know the question. We should now forthwith proceed to answer the question. It is reason and not passion which must guide our deliberations, guide our debate, and guide our decision. I yield back the balance of my time. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That was an excerpt of Representative Barbara Jordan's historic primetime remarks during President Nixon's impeachment hearings, which both catapulted her onto the national platform and served as a stark reminder of the constitutional imperative of checks and balances in our government. Moving from 1974 to today, we're looking at another moment where the critical checks and balances of our constitution are being tested as the January 6th investigation hosts its first public hearings. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, June 14th. Let's dive in. So last week's first primetime January 6th hearing nearly topped viewership of all Trump area political hearings. It got 20 million people tuned in to watch, and for a sense of comparison, the opening hearing nearly doubled the TV audience of the first three games of the NBA Finals, which averaged about 12 million viewers. The Academy Awards, Grammys, Emmys, Golden Globes each drew fewer than 10 million viewers in 2021. This is really critical, not just for what is being said at the January 6th series, but how many people are hearing it. Will it capture the public attention and imagination? Will it shift the frame of the debate both around January 6th, around the big lie, around Trump, and around Republican politics overall? Yesterday, on the second day of hearings, testimonies really came from mostly Trump's inner circle, his attorney general, campaign manager, even his own son-in-law. And they all talked about how they told him that the election fraud claims were bogus. Former deputy attorney general said he debunked the claims and told Trump it was a fake news. Former attorney general Bill Barr put it different, indicating Trump was detached from reality. And he said there was never actually an indication of interest from Trump in what the actual facts were. Bill Stepien, Trump's campaign manager, said it was far too early to declare victory and actually called the group of advisors who were urging caution Team Normal and noted how they were opposed by a demonstrably intoxicated Rudy Giuliani who claimed that there was massive voter fraud and convinced Trump to go on national television declaring the big lie. So for those who have been really engaged in following the January 6th investigations, these hearings didn't share anything new. They had some moments of drama from members of Trump's inner circle calling him out and saying that they had advised against it. But it wasn't a revelatory set of hearings. Instead, the real importance here is will it get public attention? Um, the fact that it got 20 million viewers is really significant. And as we continue to see a series of maybe up to eight uh, hearings that will be coming up, whether this pace and whether the testimonies will change people's understanding, shift public opinion, is really the question. Um, because right now, even though so many people were saying that on January 6th, they told Trump that election fraud was not the case, 
today many of those same leaders are refusing to go against the big lie. Even McCarthy, the minority leader in the House and expected future Speaker of the House if Republicans regain control, is avoiding questions of whether Biden won the election, saying that he answered the question in the past when he actually has never directly answered that question. The political dynamics are too fraught. And so really this is a question of will these hearings shift the dynamics of the political moment as the Watergate hearings did under Nixon. Other things to be paying attention to this week, of course, we're all focused on the economy. The S&P 500 closed in bear market territory yesterday after dropping nearly 20 points below its record high earlier this year. And that steep drop came just before the Fed is preparing to have its two-day monetary policy meeting, which starts today. And experts are predicting they might raise the interest rates by as much as 0.75% in an effort to curb inflation. That would be the biggest hike since 1994, and on top of 0.5% increases in March and May. This is because inflation is just continuing to go through the roof. Reports that came out Friday that was higher than expected on inflation showed that it hit 8.6% in May, the highest year ever uh, for year-over-year growth since December of 1981, and over four times higher than the Fed's typical target of an annual inflation rate near 2%. So this is really just an ongoing rock of, you know, our economy will it get under control. I mean, we've seen cryptocurrencies take a hit. Now we're seeing supply chain shortages with tampons following on gas prices continuing to rise, on baby formula shortages and others. And really the question of whether this becomes an election that is a referendum on the economy. So this kind of tension between the January 6th hearings, focusing negative attention on Trump, and then the economic news continuing to be a really challenging one for the Democrats in power to grapple with, defining our political moment. We also see, you know, potentially movement on gun violence after just an ongoing series of mass shootings. On Sunday, 10 Republicans, along with 10 Democrats, announced that they'd reached a nine-point uh, gun violence proposal on Sunday that has a good chance of passing the Senate. Speaker Pelosi is backing it. Biden is backing it, even though he said it doesn't have everything he wants. And it would be, potentially be the biggest piece of gun violence legislation in decades. Includes background checks for buyers under 21, mental health and school safety funding, state grants for red flag laws, but it does not go very far compared to so many calls for more strict legislation. It doesn't raise the age to purchase an assault rifle, it doesn't accrue broader background checks, and it really just picks some of the first items that might be possible for bipartisan action. And that's because there's a political incentive for Republicans to allow some type of modest gun safety legislation to pass. Polls show Americans really want Congress to do something. Republicans want to go back on campaigning around inflation and the economy. And they're worried that if no action is taken on gun violence, that becomes another point of campaign uh, focus for Democrats along with the Trump hearings. And so there's this interesting moment of an agreement to make a weak or modest gun safety legislation so that you Republicans can hopefully, in their calculus, say, we've done something, we're doing something, continue to vote for us. So this back and forth dance that we're in in this moment, always the case in a lead up to a midterm or a general election. 
Last thing I want to talk about, nothing as big, but always worth noting what's going on in the states. Um, so as I mentioned last week, redistricting is almost done. The court dramas and the final court hearings are almost finished, at least for impacting this cycle. However, in Louisiana, um, a federal judge has blocked the congressional map for the 2022 election, agreeing that the map likely violates the Voting Rights Act by diluting the voting strength of black voters. And the judge rejected defendants' claims that it was too late in the cycle to adopt a new map because Louisiana's congressional primaries don't happen until November. They have this uh, unique jungle primary process that put them all together. However, defendants have already appealed the decision. It's going up to the Fifth Circuit of the Court of Appeals, which is known to be very conservative, so that could get thrown back out. You know, these last cases are all important because one district, one way or another, when you've got a razor-thin margin in the House, will be really important. Also looking at voting rights in the states, um, two big pieces. One, in Arizona, the courts have rejected for a second time an attempt to disband mail-in voting. So Arizona Republicans have argued that the Arizona Constitution requires in-person voting on specific days. Trial court has thrown out that argument. And since 1991, Arizona's <laughs> allowed voters to cast mail-in ballots. And in 2020, almost 90% of Arizonans voted early, primarily with mail-in ballots. So second attempt has failed to disband this kind of process of voting by mail in Arizona. Good sign for voter integrity. Other big news was in New York. The legislature last week passed a state-level Voting Rights Act, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act of New York, modeled on and mirroring the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that was attempted to be pushed through Congress early this year. Uh, most important, restoring legal protections that mirror the Voting Rights Act that was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013. Last is that we're in primary season, continues as talked about this today. Uh, this week, we're looking at primary voters are going to the polls in Maine, Nevada, North Dakota, and South Carolina to select their party's nominees. There's also an all-party primary in Texas in the 34th district, where Democratic Representative Philemon Vela um, resigned to take a job at a lobbying firm. So there's some important local and congressional primaries taking place around the country. Mostly they're mirroring the continued battles on how Trumpian challengers will fare. Um, and I'll have more about the primary season next week. But right now, that's all for this week's review of developments in our democracy. I'm Jason Franklin. I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Until then, take care. <laughs>